Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Bootleg Football Podcast, Wild Card Round Recap Edition, plus a Divisional Round Preview Edition, all in one show. As uh, Same thing as last week, we got AFC episode and an NFC episode this week, so consider this part one of, uh, of this week's content. It was a wild, wacky, uh, predictable and unpredictable at the same time, Wild Card Weekend in the AFC. We got fairly expected results uh, from very unexpected uh, processes. So there's a lot to go over, both in terms of recapping and previewing all of the crazy matchups we're about to get to. But before we do all that, EJ, my wonderful partner, how are you? What are you drinking? How you feel it? I'm drinking coffee because we're doing this in the morning and uh, it feels like coffee or maybe an extra cup of coffee is needed after that weekend or maybe it charges you up and you don't need coffee because there was a lot of excitement over the weekend both conferences we'll talk about how we did in the preview shows which in some cases was exactly nailed it and in other cases mm, nope didn't didn't nail it close so <laughs> we'll we'll talk about hits and misses there um and you know what was expected what was unexpected but it was a lot of entertaining football i don't feel like any of the games were completely out of hand, and I think we learned something about every team, winners and losers, uh, and that's always interesting from the analyst side. So charged up, ready to talk about it, ready to sort of look back, also ready to look forward. It's that time of year. It's about advancement, who goes on, who wins. You know, We're looking at a pretty small field already of who the Super Bowl winner is going to come out of. Yeah, we, we kind of expected – all of Super Wildcard Weekend, or at least on the AFC side, to be uh, blowouts based on who was on the field, uh, at least in terms of starting quarterbacks versus injured quarterbacks, and that is not what we got at all. So we're going to start off with uh, maybe the most surprising result out of all of them, Dolphins-Bills. Obviously, the Bills did win, but it was really more like surviving, <laughs> just winning, if we're being honest. I mean, Miami through everything and the kitchen sink at them and they came damn close to winning this game for a variety of reasons uh josh allen has unfortunately reverted back over the last not even recently it's been like a three-month reversion uh back to being just this weird crazy impossible to understand turnover machine at the worst possible times he has 30 combined interception and fumbles this year, which is insane. Um, You know, for a while we're like, oh, he's, he's like the next uh, super weapon Cam Newton type. And now it's like, now it's very close to Jameis Winston, like in terms of 
turnovers compared to wow plays. Obviously his peaks are higher than Jameis, but the valleys are the exact same as Jameis. Like the turnovers have got to stop. There's no reason why the bills should have been struggling this hard. Um, but unfortunately they make it hard on themselves consistently. Now I do want to give Miami credit. Skylar Thompson played his ass off, had some really good throws that unfortunately were dropped. And if those drops did not happen, very possible they could have won. Like I, they, it was that close of a game that we're talking three plays on Miami's side uh, could have been the difference in terms of pushing them over the top of a Bills team that didn't want to get out of their own way. But unfortunately, those catches were not made, uh, and uh, it, it it feels like they just kind of ran out of gas there towards the end of the game. But overall, I thought Skyler played extremely well, um, and I think that that he proved that even without a starting quarterback and even without a starting starting running back. Mike McDaniel's offense is still pretty damn good, and at least when you know the offensive line is doing their part and the receivers are getting open, they can still put up points on anybody. So um, overall, very entertaining game, but if I was a Bills fan, I'd be utterly terrified because if they played that same way again against any of the remaining AFC teams, they would probably lose. Yeah, sometimes winning looks like losing, and I'm sure it did to some of the Bills fan base versus the Dolphins. Massive credit to Mike McDaniel. He willed this Dolphin squad to within inches, and I do mean inches, of the top team in their division, possibly the top team in the conference. They didn't play like it on Saturday. Three times this year, cumulative score of the three games between the Bills and the Dolphins, and this is credit to uh, our buddy Travis Wingfield, works for the Dolphins. Cumulative score of three games between Bills and Dolphins. Bills 85, Dolphins 81. Oof. So when you say inches, we mean this close three times, 85 Mm -hmm. to 81. Bills found a way to play down, as you said in your opener. It's true, but give credit to Mike McDaniel and this Dolphins coaching staff. Doing this in this last game with a rookie quarterback on the road is a great, great coaching achievement and the Dolphins are in good hands Dolphins fans should know that going forward that they were this close to the top team in their in their you know division and possibly even the conference which means you're in good shape going into next year you got to figure out what's going on with Tua's health but other than that that organization is competing right now and they're whisper close to getting in for the Bills Bills get in their own way They've found ways to overcome it so far, but that reckoning is coming. Make no mistake. They cannot play the way they have played and go to the Super Bowl this year. Like, it will not happen. This barely there approach that they use and have used week after week is not going to get them past the remaining teams in the AFC. They have to find a way to play cleaner football if they want to get to the Super Bowl. Cleaner football... Uh, when I said winning looks like losing, is not this. Josh Allen, the second QB since 2006 to have seven big-time throws in a playoff game. This is courtesy of James Foster, at No Flags Film on Twitter. The other guys, Drew Brees, Andrew Luck, Matt Ryan, Matthew Stafford, Aaron Rodgers. And some Bills fans might say, that's amazing. Josh is playing at a super high level, right? But he has to, and they won barely. Mm -hmm. And if you're counting on that week after week, it is not a replicable formula for success if your quarterback has to have some of the most big time throws ever since 
2006 just to barely survive (laughs) yet that ain't it and it's not likely um just like interceptions on the negative side which you talked about that number is fickle big time throws you're not always going to get six or seven in fact you're probably not always going to get five and if that's the only way you're moving on you need to find a different way to play football and the bills need to do it really quickly because they sort of founded in that middle stretch of the year we talked about it a bunch of times Josh injures his elbow. They have to balance out the offense. They have to lean a little bit more on the running backs. And then Josh's elbow starts to heal up, and he starts being snappy, and he starts being able to throw those throws, and everybody kind of starts standing around and watching again. And they can't do it. So a little bit of a win looking like a loss. The Bills do move on. The Dolphins do compete. Good news-ish for both teams. But, yes, if I was a Bills fan and I watched that performance on Saturday – I would be nervous going into the next round. Just one little statistical note. Um, Average depth of target is usually a good measure of how aggressive a quarterback is. It's not, uh, not average per completion, not yards per attempt. It's like, what is the average depth of a receiver that is being targeted? Josh Allen was obviously first this week. He's first a lot of weeks. (laughs) For comparison, Skylar Thompson was third. Like, he was really pushing the ball down the field. He was third at 11.7. Brock Purdy was second at 12.2. Last, you know, bringing up the rear this week was Joe Burrow at 6.3. Daniel Jones at 6.2 because they both were more kind of just trying to control the clock here. Not for various reasons, which we'll get to later in the show, not able to push the ball down the field as much. Um, Josh Allen was first at 17.4. His average target was almost 20 fucking yards down the field that is how insane this game was and he needed it he absolutely needed it he hit a lot of big throws but you're you're not going to be able to win a super bowl off that like it's it's fun it's flashy (laughs) but good lord it's stressful and i know bills fans are ready to go back to uh stress-free football like we saw week one against the rams where they just executed the offense and everything worked and they were balanced and it was cool they would much rather go back to that um getting to our second recap here chargers the spirit of performance is what defines acura and now it's electric introducing the zdx acura's most powerful suv yet Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Jags, which was, uh, maybe we should have hit it first because of the insanity of a 27-0 comeback. Um, And I I think that we have done... uh, as good a job as we we can at giving Jags credit throughout the year, and I still think that we fell short. Uh, we we have tried to even going back to like week nine and ten when they were going on their the start of their little run. We're like, oh, there might be something there. Even we, I think, maybe have undersold how dangerous this team is because they just they don't die. They refuse to die. It's very similar to the Giants, which ironically, these two teams played each other this year. But, like, it doesn't matter what they're down by. It doesn't matter what the situation is. Like, we get to the second half, and it's like they believe they can win any game. And ironically, they kind of can win any game when you have that kind of quarterback like Trevor Lawrence and Doug Peterson dialing up insane plays. And I got to say, 
considering how that game started out where it's like, okay, first pick or first throw is picked off. And then we got Asante Samuel making crazy plays in cover two. And then there was another interception that arguably should have been called back on a hold. Um, And then there was a fourth where Asante made like a diving catch and the ball threaded between two sets of hands and he still caught it. Like there was incredible plays made by the Chargers defense. And it took all of those plays to get to that 27, nothing score. And then once we got to that touchdown at the end of the second quarter that made it 27 to seven, and it felt like the Jags offense stabilized and they realized, Oh, we can't do all this two by two stuff. We need to go into trips and force them out of playing cover three, which is the one thing that was giving them trouble. They were, they were really having trouble moving the ball against cover three through the air. So it's like, okay, let's go into three by one. Let's force them into quarters. Let's force them into quarter, quarter, half and create some space for ourselves. And it all fell apart. They marched right down the field. Um, Chargers called Stubby two times in a row, which is a match quarters trips check. Um, or it's a trips check in quarters against a three by one distribution. They called Stubby two plays in a row. The first play, uh, they saw it. Second play, Doug Peterson's like, oh, okay. We're going to call uh, a concept which uh, my, my friend Cody Alexander, who's a great coach, he's a defensive coordinator and, and DB's guy, he calls it Smash Shoot. So I, I totally stole that name from him because it's a great name. But it's a smash concept with a shoot route uh, where it kind of like pressures the linebacker as if you're running a shallow and then you just sneak behind him and run to that middle hole against quarters and they got a touchdown off of it. And that moment, that 27-7 to 7 moment, where the Chargers or where the Jags realized, like, oh shit, we just need to get them in the quarters. The game was over. It was over from there. Cause then they come out in the second half and it's it's trips and trips and trips over and over and over again. And they get them to all these quarters and quarter, quarter half, and the space is wide open. They were breaking their coverage rules constantly. And Trevor was making all these throws. And it was just like a self-fulfilling prophecy. There was nothing the Chargers could do. I mean, there was. They could have played better, but like it, it schematically. They didn't have any answers for it. Like once they were forced out of that cover three comfort zone, fuck all they could do about it. And the Jags just marched down the field. And unfortunately for them, a 27 point pad was not enough for this Chargers offense. Uh, And Joe Lombardi, who uh, as of this morning, by the way, the morning we're recording this, Joe Lombardi got fired for reasons that were well substantiated throughout the year. Uh, but that 27-point cushion was not enough, and the Chargers only got three points in the second half, and that was it. That was all she wrote. So um, hell of an adjustment by Doug Peterson. Uh, unfortunate collapse by the Chargers. Schematically, though, in terms of watching the film, I thought it was super fun because you could literally trace the entire collapse down to that one sequence at the end of the second quarter. Yeah, Brandon Staley seemingly survives this, which I said on Twitter I don't think he can. And one of our patrons here at bootleg who is a chargers fan shout out to jack said i bet he sacrifices joe lombardi and i bet he keeps his job and i was like mm. i made a face at that i was like oh please no because <laughs> it's it's not the whole trouble like it is trouble but you know the defense collapsed in the second half like you said didn't have answers for an adjustment that peterson and his staff made the jags played really poorly in the first half like as poorly as you can play and I would say even not hope to advance. Like the fact that the Jags did advance is exceptional. They needed every play. They could have easily folded, but they didn't. And we need to remember this moment, specifically the moment you're talking about. That's the one that really stood out to me as I rewatched this game is 
that Jacksonville TD right before the half was the play of the game because obviously with the final score, they needed every play from then on and, and obviously then before if they could have avoided a couple of those picks, sure. But everything goes right for the Chargers. They're leading. They have a seemingly insurmountable lead that nobody thought they would have, and then they fully charger. They fall off and disappoint in the most sort of excruciating way possible. But the Jags needed every play, and if they don't score that touchdown right before halftime, they don't win this game. They run out of gas. They come up just short. But mentally, you talked about them realizing, oh, hey, the light comes on. But also physically, they needed those points, and they got them. And it was a critical juncture in the game was that first Jacksonville touchdown. They sneak in right before the half. And then credit to Doug Peterson and his staff for making those great second-half adjustments and hammering on them. They didn't get cute. Peterson in the past sometimes – like his, you know, tree father, Andy Reid, has gotten cute. And they didn't get cute. They just kept hitting it. They are like, if they can't stop it, we're going to keep pounding it. We're going to keep pounding it. We're going to keep pounding it until they stop it. And if they don't stop it, we're going to keep pounding it. We're going to win. And they did. They didn't get cute. They just kept hammering. So huge credit to the Jags. Um, really interesting game for Chargers fans. Excruciating Yes, Lombardi is gone, and and fans of the statistic that you brought up earlier, average depth of target, are celebrating in in bars across America right now because Joe Lombardi uh, has restrained, seemingly restrained Justin Herbert to one of the lowest A dots in the league, which, given his skill set, seems completely counterintuitive to most of us. It is um, Shane Day, the passing coordinator, also let go. Is it enough? I don't know. It doesn't seem like the Chargers have that backbone, that ability to shift. And you talked about second-half adjustments. Peyton Manning came out and said something really interesting. That Second-half adjustments are the biggest myth in football, that nothing really happens. You go in and eat some orange slices, and the coach just says, let's go. I'm going to push back. Peyton knows more about football. He'll forget more about football than I'll ever know. I get it. But the coaches huddle outside the locker room before halftime and go, What's happening? What's mm-hmm. working? Do we need to keep doing it or do we need to shift it? And there was a clear shift right before the half, but really it, it sort of came to fruition in the second half. And if the Jags don't make that shift, it might not be the player making the shift, right? Trevor might not have said, hey, we need to do this. But Peterson and his staff most certainly did. The Jags in the second half were very, very different by distribution. You laid out good numbers about how they shifted. So second half adjustments are real, at least for the coaches, maybe not for the quarterback. And who knows? Peyton thought he was the coach for at least the Peyton second half. Peyton was the of coach his... in several yeah. places. I think it's the I, second half. I think what he was alluding to though was it's less about you go into halftime and you're drawing stuff up on the whiteboard. Right. I think what he was alluding to was there's a rolling adjustment throughout the game and it might even be three or four drives into it. And then at halftime, you have a conversation of, hey, is this shit working or not? And they already made the adjustment prior to halftime where they started going into trips and all that kind of stuff. And I think at halftime, it could even be as simple as a, hey, that worked pretty well. Let's keep doing it. You're right, Trevor. Let's keep doing it. Like, it could be something that simple. It's not necessarily like you're drawing shit up in the dirt at halftime. It's more so like, what are you seeing now that we have, you know, 13 minutes or whatever the halftime length is? I can't remember what it is in the NFL. Um, you have that much time. You can have a quick conversation. Everybody takes a piss. You grab a power bar or whatever, and you have a conversation. What are you seeing? What can I do to help? You know, what's your what's your your feelings, your blind spots? And you can have a five minute conversation. You're not drawing stuff up. You're just you're resetting 
based on the adjustments that you've already made, the rolling adjustments you've already made. And I think it's pretty clear based on receiver distribution, which was very different in the second half. And I have some numbers on this, like actual detailed numbers, because I calculated it. Um, first half, two by two receiver distribution versus three by one, 12 for two by two, 16 for three by one. Second half, 11 for two by two, 24 for three by one. Um, so they really leaned into it a lot more in the second half. And I think that even if the adjustment had already started going that way, it clearly was something that they changed in the middle of the game. Does it always happen in the locker room? No, but it's not like, it's not like there's no conversations being had. And, and there were some other players that chimed in on this and said like, no, like we do, you know, we, we do take a breather and have conversations, but Peyton is like such a cyborg that, 10 minutes into the game, he already knows what is and isn't working. So he's already kind of got it worked out ahead of time. But that was yeah. the one that, that resonated for me as he said, I don't think I ever made a halftime. It doesn't mean the rest <laughs> like, of the team. Well, Peyton, you're, you're Peyton Manning. So. Right. You probably didn't, but your coaches did, your teammates did. And you're right. It's not, hey, let's throw the game plan out with the bathwater and start a whole new one. That's not what occurs. And it really does feel like probably happens after the script ends or it should with a great coaching staff like hey we tried the script we saw this we saw this they reacted this way this worked this didn't we want to do a little bit more of this and so it's that confirmation really at halftime hey we tried it we shifted it's working what does it look like let's keep going or maybe a little bit more of this and a little bit less of that also those rolling adjustments are a lot easier for players these days because of tablets versus the printout pictures because you can literally sit there with a tablet on the sideline and and in real time see like okay he's nailing down on the safety that means that we can sneak somebody like you can, it's it's easier to figure out when you're on the bench what the hell's going on uh, with those tablets so you know technology has has changed the game a lot from that standpoint um, all right let's get to our third recap before we get to these previews we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring The best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Uh, Ravens-Bengals, another game that <laughs> by all rights should not have been as close as it was. But uh, at the same time, the Ravens were a good team. They were a playoff team for a reason, starting quarterback or not. They have a very good defense. Uh, they have a rushing attack that at times, uh, especially when when uh, when their quarterback is, is a part of it, they have a rushing attack that can be very, very tough to stop. Um, but really, uh, for me, what made this game so close was the Ravens defensively. Um, they're just a suffocating unit overall, but also the Bengals just going into this game, they could not sustain more injuries on their offensive line. Um, they spent a whole bunch of money in the off season. They've invested draft capital, all that. Like they've, they, they had rebuilt their offensive line in one off season. And now 
As of the second half of this game, Jonah Williams dislocated his left kneecap, so both he and Alex Kappa are week to week. They already lost Lyle Collins. Like, they're down 60% uh, of, of their starting offensive line, and arguably uh, their three best players on their offensive line. So really, really tough for them. And by the grace of God, they still only allowed a, a pressure percentage of 26%, which is about middle of the pack. But one of the big reasons why they were able to do that is because Joe Burrow's average depth of target, which I brought up earlier, was the second lowest uh, of the weekend at 6.3 yards. So, and by the way, going across the entire uh, regular season, that would have been the lowest in the NFL. So it, it is a very, very low average depth of target. Um, his time to throw, average time to throw was only 2.58 seconds, which would have been the uh, the, the fourth quickest is the best way to phrase that in the regular season. So ball was coming out quick. It was coming out short because they had to, because the offensive line is so banged up. And that really kind of put a tent over the offense and what they were capable of doing. So yes, the Ravens defense did play well, which they normally do. They're a very good defense, but also the Bengals based on their offensive line woes can only do so much right now. And I think that was a big contributor to why this game was closer than it was. Um, and hell, if if Huntley just didn't jump over the pile when he wasn't supposed to, because as John Harbaugh said, they had a, a goal line, like they, they had bodies behind him to push him into the end zone. You're a yard and a half out. You're not supposed to jump. Uh, he jumped and they fumbled and ran it back. And that was the difference in the game. Without Huntley doing that, Ravens might have actually won this thing, and I think that, again, the Bengals' injuries are a big reason why, and it is something that that we're going to have to talk about a lot going into this Bills game. It's a big deal. Uh, We will definitely be spending some time on it. This one was an AFC North battle all the way, physical and close. You knew it was going to be. Those are the types of games these two teams play. They know each other really well. They don't like each other very much. Both sides talked about that in the week leading up to it. No love lost in this one. I'm going to flip the narrative on Huntley and say, look, Huntley's a backup quarterback. We both like him. Could he have played better? Sure. Did he play better than Anthony Brown would have? I believe he did. Huntley wasn't pretty in this one, but even with all of that, even with him going up and getting stuffed by Logan Wilson in what amounted to being a basketball play, you know, he didn't make the layup because (laughs) Logan Wilson went up and rejected him. The Ravens were a James Prochet fingertip grab in the end zone away from tying this one or going for two and winning it. Mm -hmm. Even with all of that. So a backup quarterback, again, we gave Skylar Thompson his flowers at the beginning of the podcast. I'm going to give Tyler Huntley his for being effective, for keeping this team rolling, for keeping them close with the Bengals and being, you know, one fortuitous bounce away from making this a tie ball game or having all the guts in the world and going for two and winning it. That's pretty damn good, folks. And it's better than what Anthony Brown did the week before. So the Ravens were lucky to have Tyler Huntley there to play when Lamar wasn't ready to go. The Bengals do survive. Lou Ranarumo's defense came to play. We talked about that in the preview episode. Basically won this one. You know, Mm -hmm. that fumble in return wins this game. But this is a balanced team that can win on both sides of the ball. The major loss, Jonah Williams going down, Jackson Carmen comes in, not my favorite player, as you know, at left tackle, and immediately the pressures just start coming in bunches. Like, it wasn't like, oh, he played pretty well. He played awful football. 
the good news, and good news is in air quotes for those of you listening to this audio version, is the Bengals have a bunch of experience. <laughs> They have two years' (laughs) worth of playing with an offensive line that is not great. And Joe has a ton of escapability, and he can use it. It's not ideal. He can do it. And, yes, the offense can do less in that situation. He's not going to get those clean five-step drops where he can unleash balls to chase and Higgins down the sideline. But he knows how to do this. They can play this way and win. They got to the Super Bowl last year playing behind a line that allowed quite a few pressures. This year... I'm sure he's gotten quite comfortable. He's been pressured less than either of the previous two seasons by a lot. Like the Bengals line this year has been good in keeping Joe clean. Now he's got to revert. He had to revert in the last quarter of this game, and he's got to revert for every game going forward, seemingly, depending on that injury status, back to that, I can do everything Joe Burrow's capability. I can't count on any protection. I just am kind of on my own every play. He knows how to. It's not awesome for the Bengals, and it's certainly a – less potent version but they still made the super bowl playing that way last year so they can do it and i would argue that the defense is playing better this year than last year's unit so it 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 does balance out a little bit but it is a bummer and we all love to see fully healthy football teams going at each other and we're not going to get that with the bengals from this point out now there was a a hullabaloo by even Ravens players like J.K. Dobbins saying that they weren't running the ball enough and that he should have got more carries. I do want to say the Ravens did run the ball a lot in this game. They had 35 carries, like 35 runs for mostly other than other than Gus Edwards, um, who had to see 3.2 yards per carry. But J.K. had 4.8, Tyler had, had 6.0, which you know obviously not as much as Lamar because Lamar is it's insane. Lamar. But Lamar wasn't on the field. Um, but overall, like they were effective ish at running the ball against a good run defense from Cincy and they had 35 carries like that that would be number one in the league on a per game basis by far if you average that over the entire season so it's not that they they didn't run the ball it's that JK wanted them to run the ball more with him and would he have been more effective at it than Edwards maybe probably Uh, I mean statistically in this game he was but you know would that have been the difference in the game uh, I don't know. Maybe not fumbling on the goal line from Tyler Huntley would have been the difference in the game. How about that? Like, I, I don't think it's – there's a lot of things to get on Greg Roman about. Not running the ball enough is usually not one of them. Yeah, there's a weird sort of toxic loop with Ravens fans. I watched this game at Buffalo Wild Wings with the number one Ravens fan I know. Uh, listeners of the podcast will know him as the Be More guy. <laughs> and I, I love watching football with him. He's a smart fan, and obviously his team was playing, so I shifted tables and we sat together and watched this game. And there's this weird knowledge of what the Ravens are and what they do well and who Greg Roman is. They know him intimately and there was definitely call for run the damn ball you can't throw the ball you didn't set up to throw the ball run the damn ball and when they ran the damn ball and even when it didn't work they were kind of like do it some more because we can't do the other thing we just know we can't do the other thing so it's this weird little sort of self-fulfilling prophecy of well you built it that way you know we know it's not necessarily the way to survive in the modern NFL, but it's all you got, so you should do it and lean into it. Do we love it? Nope, we don't love it, but we know you should do it because you can't do the other thing. Yeah. So, uh, you know, will there be changes with the Ravens? I have no idea. The vibes in that building are way off right now. Uh, I can't quite tell what's going on in Lamar's head. 
I can't quite tell what's going on in Harbaugh's head with Roman. I, I have no idea how the players really feel. They're pissed, but I can't tell it who. <laughs> Something's wrong there. I just don't know what it is. So we'll probably check back in the offseason when, when we do our offseason you know, previews and, and see what the hell's going on there. But for now, I'm in wait-and-see mode with potential staff changes or, God forbid, potential quarterback changes uh, in Baltimore, depending on what's going on with Lamar and, and his deal. It's a... It's a weird time to be a Ravens fan, unfortunately for them. Today's episode is brought to you by ButcherBox. You can take the guesswork out of buying high-quality meat and have it delivered right to your door from ButcherBox as often as you want it. All of their beef is 100% grass-fed, and they also have free-range chicken, wild-caught seafood, and pork-raised crate-free. You can get a variety of box plan options, from curated to totally customized, so you can get the exact cuts you want. I myself just got a beef box last week, and just from that box alone, I've already made a strip loin with some pancetta Brussels sprouts on the side. I also did a flat iron steak with a homemade Lagavulin jalapeno chimichurri that was just insane, by the way. You really should be using scotch in your chimichurri. I really highly recommend it. It's nuts. Uh, I also used some of that ground beef to make some dirty rice for all you Louisiana folks watching this show. And I also whipped up some Cajun rub sirloin tips with potatoes on the side. And even after all that food, I still have another pork tenderloin, I have a chuck roast, and more top sirloin steaks to work with in the freezer. So if you're a meat lover like me and EJR, but you don't want to deal with going out to the butcher shop to get high quality cuts to work with, and you just want it delivered quickly and easily, check out ButcherBox and everything they have to offer. You can get their New Year's bundle for free, plus $10 off when you sign up today. That's an extra 14 ounce pork tenderloin, two pounds of ground beef, and four top sirloin steaks for free in your first box with promo code bootleg at butcherbox.com bootleg. Again, that is promo code bootleg at butcherbox.com bootleg. Thank you again to ButcherBox for sponsoring today's show. And with that, let's get back to it. Uh, now, let's get to our divisional preview section of this episode because we have uh, an incredible slate this weekend. And to be honest, these are the matchups that we were... This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Hoping that we would get going into the year these just four remaining freaky alien-ish quarterbacks going blow for blow in the AFC for, for conference supremacy. This is what we were hoping for. We got Mahomes. We got Trevor Lawrence in the divisional round. Jags and Chiefs already did play this year, and the Chiefs did come out on top. But going back and watching that game, it it should have been closer on the scoreboard than it was. There was a couple missed field goals. There was a Jags touchdown that got called back. Like they they gave Kansas City all they could handle, and uh, I'm sure KC felt uh, felt a little bit nervous 
at the end of that game based on what they know Trevor Lawrence is capable of. Obviously, that game was at the very start of this kind of ascendancy uh, that Trevor Lawrence was on in the back half of the year. It kind of started out in week nine. That game is in week 10. And, uh, you know, as, as it relates to previewing this game, as we established earlier, the Chargers uh, did play the Jags offense really tough in the first half when it was a lot of like either, you know, really close bunch sets or two by two stuff where they could play a lot of cover three into that, which is what the Chargers do. They play cover three. Um, you know, they had to force Trevor into a whole bunch of throws into tight windows over the middle because the, everything was just kind of get funneled inside because all, you know, the nickel and uh, and the apex on the opposite side, which is usually going to be the backside safety, are playing outside leverage. So they're saying if you're going to get anything, it's going to be inside. You're going to have to throw through all these hands of linebackers and, you know, the free safety is going to be nailing down like you better be on point. And he wasn't, at least not against cover three. Like they really made his life hell. And then as we said, uh, in the recap, Peterson said, fuck it. Let's spread them out. Let's create some space. If we got to go empty protection, we'll go empty protection. We'll go trips. We'll go four strong. Just create as much space as possible. And it worked. Here's the thing. Chiefs don't play a lot of cover three. Basically, at all. Which is what gave the Jags so many problems. Um, they are 32nd in the NFL in cover three, even against two by two, where it makes sense to call cover three on early downs. They only call it about 10% of the time. For reference, uh, the average is the Ravens at 16th at 33%. So the average is more than triple what the Chiefs uh, call cover three at. What they do call a lot in those scenarios, uh, especially against two by two looks, is cover two and quarters. They call the fourth most cover two in the league at about 20%, and the fifth most quarters at about 25%, which is a lot, relatively speaking. So they prefer to have two safeties deep rather than just one safety closing down the middle of the field. And I think that this Jaguars team, even more so than the Jags team that existed back in Week 10, the first time they played, uh, is more equipped to handle that because they've kind of figured themselves out offensively. Uh, and I actually went back and I looked at the tape and – you know, the Jags actually had some beaters dialed up for cover two in quarters that they just didn't hit. Uh, there was one that was going to be a big game to Christian Kirk, who already had a monster game as it is. Uh, Peterson was doing everything possible to give him good matchups. There was a great beater against Tampa, too. They got knocked down at the line of scrimmage. There was a couple more that, unfortunately, Trevor got sacked before the ball could get out. Uh, the offensive line is playing better now than it was back then, even through all their injuries. Um but like I looked at the, the scheme from that game, and I was like, oh, shit, Doug actually had a pretty good plan. He actually knew what he was doing here. Just a couple throws, for whatever reason, didn't work out due to the things that were kind of not really uh, uh, Trevor's fault. It was just the Chiefs' defensive line were playing out of their damn minds in that game. But schematically on the back end, the Jags had them. They really did. They had them. And I think that the plan isn't going to change that much going into this game, especially because we know Spags doesn't really call a lot of cover three. Uh, if he does do a middle field close structure, it's going to be like man coverage. It's going to be cover one. And I, I don't know if you really want to do that against the Jags either because they call so much mesh. So I don't know, man. This game feels kind of weird to me. I, I don't get good vibes uh, schematically. I think it's going to be closer than people think. I think that Doug Peterson knows this defense well, and he has a good plan for it. And as long as the offensive line holds up against Chris Jones and Karloftis and all those edge rushers that are coming off a fresh week, it's going to be a dogfight, man. It really is. I think the piece you're highlighting of the Jags offense versus the Chiefs defense is the piece that's going to be closer than people think it is. Like, 
you you know folks we both know folks that follow the Chiefs really closely especially on the defensive side of the ball shout out to our buddy Craig Stout at Barley Hop on Twitter if you're not following me you're a Chiefs fan you should be I would bet he's a little bit worried about Peterson the Jags because of all the things that you laid out the other side is going to be challenging for the Jags uh, if there's a side that they feel confident about and should, the Chiefs are the AFC mountaintop. First in points per game, first in yards per game, first in points per play, first in yards per play, second in third down conversion, second in fourth down conversion, second in red zone scoring, and first in TDs per game. Like, <laughs> oh, is, is that all? <laughs> no, just, just a couple stats that don't matter. Yeah. This is the offense you want to be if you're in football, period. Jags defense is playing better, absolutely, than the first time they met. They've figured more things out. More players have developed into the roles they were hoping they would develop into during that time, but they hadn't quite gotten to yet. The Jags D is going to have to try and maximize Trayvon Walker and Josh Allen versus those Chiefs tackles. We've talked at length about the Chiefs tackles this year in that situation, and that's a matchup that does favor the Jaguars D. And if if they're going to make hay against this juggernaut of an offense to try and keep this close, and they need to, that's, that's where they're going to try and pull those levers. They're going to have to play the way they did against the Chargers in the second half, <laughs> right? They can't have the first half they had against the Chargers. Trevor's going to need a couple extra possessions. You're playing Mahomes. They're the favorites. You need a couple bounces. And if the defense doesn't get him those, it's going to be difficult because just blow for blow, yes, the Jags offense is going to be better against the Chiefs defense. The Chiefs offense against the Jags offense is going to be as expected, and that's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Trevor's going to need... A war of attrition is going to be tough. Yeah. Right. If you're just going to try and boat race the Chiefs, good luck. Yeah. Uh, Trevor's going to need a much cleaner first quarter and first half there was you know first throw like you said there was some eh, unlucky bounces and there was just some great plays on the defense he can't afford to give away those possessions hopefully that his defense is giving him extras of um if he gets in a big hole versus the chiefs i think it's over like it's not going to be they're not going to charge her for you again 10 15 points maybe 27 points against the chiefs in the first half not even close. 20 Man, points against the Chiefs. In the first I wouldn't half. even say 15, maybe. I would say, like, 12 is – Yeah, that's that's about where I draw the line where you, I'm like, okay, it's it's out of hand now, you know? You better not be digging a hole in the first half if you're the Jags because the Jags have been unbelievable in the second half of games. You talked about that at the Open. They have been – you know, they seemingly feel like they can win every game because they can, and they have been so good in the second half, and particularly in the fourth quarter of games this year. We've been on that trend for about five weeks now saying they just – Trevor just goes into this spot in the fourth quarter. and If he's 20 points down to the Chiefs, it's not going to matter. Yeah. Like, the Chiefs' defense is not going to do what the Chargers' defense did. So – not really worried about the Chiefs on either side of the ball. The offense, obviously not. The defense, yeah, there's some vibes there that Peterson could get them with what he had dialed up and his knowledge of the scheme. He obviously has a great knowledge of this scheme. They've got a very young secondary, but they if there's a vulnerability, it's Spags in the second half because he's not going to switch it up, like you said, and play cover three. They're going to stick to their guns, and they're either going to make plays or they're not. And 
the Jags have been superheroes in the second half, so they're going to have to keep on it, even if they get that 20-point lead. They're not going to be able to relax. If there's a vulnerability for the Chiefs, that's it. It's the defense in the second half and just sort of staying with it. I expect KC to win, but Jacksonville is not going to go without a fight, and they're going to keep this game closer than a lot of people think they are. The player matchup I'm really looking forward to is McDuffie versus ETN. Corner versus – are you talking like when ETN's – like edge runs and etn's get or and, and edge runs for to, sure because yeah. mcduffie mcduffie is built for this his tape at washington is snuffing out edge runs tfls yeah. whatever else and the way the jags use etn they flex him out right they'll put mm-hmm. him in the slot they you know last year's plan for him was well maybe he's just gonna be offensive weapon we're gonna use him more receiver and you know we're gonna use the other back as the running back this year he's flexed more back to a traditional running back spot but they will flex him out and he runs pass patterns and several times he's gonna be matched up versus mcduffie who's been playing better and better throughout the last month of the season yeah, so that's they, gonna they be ain't, a, they ain't putting bolton on them that's for damn sure they no better <laughs> not they better not so those edge runs that we've been so high on etn for and the jags have made a bunch of hay on those look for mcduffie to be right there snuffing those out at tfls and somebody's gonna win that matchup it's two good players uh sort of strength for strength and that's gonna be really fun the other player that folks should be watching that you may or may not know about is walker little the tackle for the jags and he's been playing exceptionally good football since coming into the lineup in fact he's been playing good enough football that i don't think he goes back to being a swing tackle in a league that has a shortage of tackles especially elite pass protectors walker little is going to be able to put his tape up there and say trade me like let me go be a starter somewhere else because he's earned it um and the jags are lucky to have him on the roster and lucky that he is playing as well as he is a very talented player in college had just injury concerns was the reason that he slipped at all but his his tape when he was on the field and healthy was elite in the pass protection realm and he's been showing that with the jags and it's fun to see to back up your uh your mcduffie versus etn so that that fourth and one carry that etn had where they faked like they were going to do the the the, the push behind the sneak. Uh, and then they called a sweep out of a T formation. It was Asante Samuel against ETN in space, and Asante stepped in the bucket. It's basically the same thing as crack replace rules. Like when your receiver goes to crack, like you got to replace outside. He was too slow to get to it. ETN ran by him for 25 yards. McDuffie's going to have to pull the trigger on that because they're, they're going to test all these corners and make them tackle that that's like the main thing they like to do with etn is either you know we're going to call crack toss or we're going to call outside zone like we're going to do everything we can to get him outside the numbers and make the corners tackle because uh, god i can't remember when we talked about this must have been months ago um because this is really getting deep in the weeds by the way because of etn's gate and how he walks and how he runs there were there were some trainers that were talking about how his curvilinear acceleration means how how fast he accelerates when he's curving around the edge is actually faster than how he accelerates when he's going in a straight line because of like his duck footedness. And so his curvilinear acceleration got Asante Samuel pretty damn good on that fourth and one run because when he's rounding the corner, he's faster than fucking everybody. Like other, unless your name is Tyree Killer Jalen Waddle, like he's faster than everybody in the league at that. Um, and so McDuffie's going to have to get him before he hits the edge, not as he hits the edge, because nobody can keep up with him once he hits the edge. So, yeah, good pull by you. I like that. Well, bootleg listener brought that up. 
I don't know if you caught that one over the weekend, but a bootleg uh-uh. listener said, oh, look, it's Travis Etienne's curvilinear acceleration. I know about that because <laughs> of bootleg football. And I was like, yes, somebody's listening. Uh, the interesting part about that, our other buddy, Ben Solak, who works for The Ringer, uh, had a great breakdown of that particular play and a play that they had run earlier in the year, week three, to do exactly the same thing. Great breakdown by Ben. Go follow him if you're not. You probably are. You should be. Uh, but basically, it was the Jags saying, we want you, Asante. You're mm-hmm. a little guy in space, and we're going to make you tackle. We're basically leaving you alone. We're giving you the running back one-on-one because we like that matchup, and we think we're going to win it. And they did in space. That matchup looks a lot less favorable when the guy on the other side is McDuffie. Who I, make- thought, I thought could have been a very um, – I mean, he's a great corner, but I thought he was going to be an all-pro safety. Uh, just because of how he tackles. And I was like, oh, I kind of want him in that Tyron Matthew role. Right. Obviously, he can kind of do whatever, but he's he's a tough one to to get around. And they've floated him inside a nickel, and some of his biggest highlight plays as a Husky were exactly that. Run blitzes, knifing into the backfield, chasing the play down from the backside even, making those tackles behind the line of scrimmage, but he will attack and tackle. So that play in particular, the one you bring up, is is where this started sort of germinating in my brain is – uh, I don't like that matchup near as much if it's McDuffie on the other side. Samuel, great covered corner, as he showed, versus Trevor and the Jags. Not as good setting the edge and tackling. Not his strength. And the Jags said, okay, we're going to make you. We're gonna just going to give you the open field and say, do it, because we don't think you can. And he couldn't. With McDuffie over there, they're going to say, do it, and he just might. Uh, one last note I have uh, on, on Jags offense versus Chiefs defense. Um, big thing here, stay out of third and long, you know, going back to the first matchup, uh, this, these were the yardages of all their third downs <laughs> in the first matchup, uh, third and nine. And then we had three, seven, 11, 12, seven, four, seven, two, five, nine, seven, three, three. I'll do the math for you guys, but that's eight out of 14 third downs, 57%. They were third and seven or longer. Ish. For reference, if we compare the third and long rates of the Chiefs over, say, the entire regular season, 88 out of, uh, it's like the 209 uh, were, were uh, third and seven or longer. So that's only 42% of their third downs were third and long. So it, it's, it's a big difference. And that's also a big reason why the Chiefs were the second best third down conversion rate in the league, because they stayed out of third and long. Jags have to stay out of third and long because as much as we talk about, oh, the offensive line's been playing better and Walker Little's been good. And Chris Jones is Chris Jones, dude. <laughs> like you, you cannot be in third and nine against Chris Jones. You just can't. So that's yeah. kind of, that's imperative number one here or directive number one here is, is third and five. I would accept third and nine. Not so much. Also, I lied. One more note. If you are filling out a prize pick slip for this game, as of, what are we, Tuesday at 12.50 p.m. in the afternoon, uh, Patrick Mahomes is at 303.5 pass yards. I'm taking the over on that. Uh, Travis Kelsey is at 81.5 receiving. I'm taking the over on that. I know it's close, but I absolutely am. These two are built for playoff games like this one, where I think a young quarterback is going to be coming for their neck, and they're going to have to keep up a little bit, blow for blow. Uh, I'm betting on those two. On the Jags side, this one is... 
I, w- I don't want to use the word egregious, more just an opportunity for me. Uh, Christian Kirk is at 59 and a half receiving. When we know that the Chiefs are going to be playing a lot of cover two, and we know that as a slot option or a number three, Doug Peterson is going to be doing everything in his power to get Kirk matched up with good leverage on the pole runner and all those Tampa two looks. That's what they did the first time around. And Kirk had like a monster day that could have been even bigger. I expect that again, 59 and a half seems super low. Um, you know, maybe Zay Jones at 50 and a half over, but I, I think working him down the boundary is going to be a lot more difficult than working Kirk over the middle. So give me Kirk over the middle. And then Lawrence, uh, 245 and a half passing. Hmm. That's like right at the line. But I, oh God, it's tough. I'm going to take over, not feel great about it, but I will take over on that. The playoffs is what makes me hesitant on the Trevor line. It's not Trevor or the Jags offense or, or Peterson's calls or anything else. It's playoffs. Things get the, each round you go a little bit further. Things get a little bit tighter. Things lock down a little bit more. The pressure ratchets up and, that Chiefs defensive line, you talked about third and long not being where they want to be, that they have to stay on schedule. And the reason is you don't want to give that Chiefs line the ability to pin their ears back and come. Because Chris Jones is Chris Jones. Carl Aftis has heated up over the second half of the season. He had a really quiet first half of the season. He was sort of learning and taking it all in. He's he's had his sort of fits and starts, his shots and flourishes through the second half. You don't want to give those guys an extra half a step, an extra beat, because it's going to make your life really hard. Yeah, so I, I did a slip of just those four picks because those are the ones I feel best about. I'll have a slip for every single game. But again, that's Kirk over 59.5, uh, Lawrence over 245.5, Kelsey over 81.5, Mahomes over 303.5. If you guys uh, are already on prize picks, feel free to tail that. Or if you think I'm an idiot, go against it. If you're not already on prize picks and you want to play, uh, and you want a little bit of extra out of it, you can use promo code bootleg and they will uh, double your deposit up to $100. So you get $100 free to play with on the platform if uh, if this type of stuff is fun for you and makes the game more interesting. So thank you again to Prize Picks for sponsoring not just this episode, but every episode this season. They've been a phenomenal partner and allowed us to do all of this content uh, as a full-time job, which has been uh, amazing. All right, DJ, uh, let's get to... Perhaps the main event and the main event that we've been waiting for for weeks at this point, Bengals Bills. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. We did not, uh, unfortunately, because of DeMar Hamlin's injury, which thank God he recovered from and has been around the facility and is in good spirits. Thank God he recovered from that. But because of that uh, injury, we did not really get to see a whole lot of of this matchup the first time around. And so there's a lot of unknowns here. And even since that game took place three weeks ago, whatever it was, these are still two different teams even since then because of injuries that have happened since then. Obviously, the Jonah Williams injury. He's week to week. I would be stunned 
If he plays this week after dislocating his kneecap like seven days ago, I don't think he's going to play. Alex Kappa is a maybe, but still I'm not expecting it. So we're looking at a very banged up Bengals offensive line, even compared to, you know, a few weeks ago when they first took the field. That's going to be the story here is how are the Bengals adjusting against this Bills defense with unreliable, likely unreliable pass protection. Um, and from a schematic perspective, again, I, I went, I did my whole rabbit hole thing. I went digging on some numbers. You might like these. So the Bills are another one of these teams, and we've talked about this multiple times, that against three-by-one sets, they run a bunch of quarters. They run a bunch of cover two, quarter-quarter half defenses. Uh, they run more cover three than Kansas City, but so does everybody. But they're still below average overall in terms of cover three. Um, they just they love keeping both safeties deep a majority of the time. And if they run cover three, it's because they're starting with two high safeties and they're rotating one of them down, either weak side or strong side, with a couple different cover three looks. Uh, and they do that post-snap so you don't know pre-snap which one has the seam and which one doesn't. You know, are they going curl flat? Are they going hook? Like there's a whole bunch of different ways you can run cover three out of that. They don't want to tip their hand of which one they're doing. Um that being said, I would bet my bottom dollar that we do not see a lot of quarters against three by one in this game, because if you're playing quarters, it's basically just man coverage with extra steps. And these outside corners, in my opinion, do not have uh, enough juice right now to keep up with Jamar Chase or T Higgins outside one-on-one. And if you're playing quarters, you will get those one-on-ones. Remember the, the, the Bengals offensive line is banged up. And so their number one threat in terms of still pushing the ball down the field and not having an average depth of target that's lower than everybody else, their number one way to do that is Joe Burrow on a three-step drop with a clear one-on-one pre-snap and throwing up a fade. That is the only way you can really push the ball down the field other than like max protection off play action. That is the only way you can push the ball down the field with a banged-up offensive line is identify the one-on-ones, go ball off a three-step drop. Bills do not want that to happen because they will lose if that happens straight up. They will lose. So I think that we're going to see a lot of cover two and a lot of quarter, quarter, half, specifically in quarter, quarter, half. The half field safety is just going to be wherever Jamar Chase is. So if that's the passing strength, so be it. If it's if he's isolated backside and we're playing cover two there and quarters on the front side, like a kind of a softer quarters, not like a press man quarters. That's probably what they're going to do is half field safety to Jamar Chase's side to give these guys some help and we'll live with everything else. The one adjustment that Cincy could make if that gives them problems, which I think it will, is if you put Chase and Higgins on the same side in trips and you go send Tyler Boyd out to be the sacrificial lamb backside isolated, then you can make some hay because a lot of the adjustments that, that you would make to that if, if they stay in quarter, quarter, half, it's going to be the exact same thing that happened in the Jags-Chargers game where you can easily break the coverage rules. You get the backside safety to nail down a number three, and then all of a sudden you got Higgins and Jamar overloading the deep half safety, and you're fucked. You are fucked if that happens. Jamar's going to get a touchdown every single time. So I think that that is the one adjustment that Cincy could make to combat this, and then they're going to have to force the Bills to adjust again. But all told... I expect a lot of cover two, not a whole lot of quarters, and we force Burrow to sit back there in a messy pocket uh, and wait for guys to come open later 
laterally rather than coming open earlier vertically against quarters. That's my theory, um, and we'll see if it happens. But if I, if I was the Bills, that's what I would do. Feels like Cincinnati will definitely have to try and break that cap. Feels like the Bills are going to create that sort of tall, deep third cap and say, work underneath, mm-hmm. right? Because we don't want you getting those free corner shots. We can't afford it for all the reasons you laid out. Look for the Bills' pass rushers and pressure uh, because pressure can come from anywhere in this defense. They will throw nickel blitzes to attack who's ever at left tackle. If it's Jackson Carmen, I don't like it for the Bengals. Joe is going to be harried. He is going to be running. He's going to be in those messy pockets. He's going to be diving underneath guys and having to bring his eyes back up. He does it as well as anybody but he shouldn't have to, and he's going to in this game. That's just the way that it works. He's, again, got all that experience from his first two years of doing that. It's not that he can't. He can. It's just not ideal for the Bengals' offense. Tyler Boyd versus Teron Johnson, offensive matchup I like for the Bengals. I like Tyler Boyd's skill set. I think he's very underrated as a number three wide receiver. Don't think he'd be a number three in a lot of offenses. He is in this one because the two guys ahead of him are all world. I think they can make some leverage. So if they do throw him out there as the sacrificial lamb backside ISO, I think he still comes open a couple times and Burrow's good enough to hit him because I don't know that they'll rotate, but if you're going to line up Higgins and Chase on one side, you might want your top outside corner to travel. Bills don't do that a lot, especially cover two looks, but they might sort of have to and break their own rules. If they do, and Boyd's matched up on what essentially is the third corner versus the Bills, it's not going to be a ton, but he could he could break a couple of plays there and quickly, which is the way Burrow's going to have to because he's not going to have those five-step drops. Bill's corners, you talk about it, tough assignment versus Chase and Higgins. Those guys are bigger and stronger than most of the receivers they match up against in their division. They just don't see guys like that, not two of them on the same team, week to week. And they're not, I don't want to say they're not built for it, but they, they're going to have to play with some help, and there's only so much help you can give, especially if you do the double stack on one side. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of nightmare scenarios there where you put one Bills defender in the middle and go pick. And <laughs> picking between Higgins and Chase, is there's no good choice there. So the more the Bengals can do that, the more it favors them, the more the Bills can keep themselves out of that matchup with creative rotations, the better off they'll be. So interesting to see how it'll play out. Josh on the other side for the Bills is going to have to play within himself. Wait for those opportunities to arise. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but he can't force plays against this defense. This defense, Luna Rumo's defense, is too good for that. And he'll have to be patient and take them when they happen. The, The pressure will be there to try and do it all on his own because I don't think the running game for the Bills, which hasn't been great all year, is going to make any hay against this Bengals defensive front. Not many run games have, and therefore it's all going to be like, well, the run's not working. Josh, do your thing, right? And he's going to want to. He's going to feel pressure to be the hero, to try and have those seven big-time throws in a game. If he does that against this defense, it's not going to work out. So he's going to have to play, again, we go back to it over and over again, like he did week one where he was patient, and he would take the 11-play drive if you let him. He's going to have to do that again, and if he doesn't, it's going to put him in bad situations. He's probably going to throw a couple of those bad picks. One of them might be to Jermaine Pratt. Jermaine Pratt has been playing outstanding football over the last three to four weeks, especially in pass coverage, and I think Pratt is going to limit 
Dawson Knox's effectiveness in this game. Dawson Knox is one of Josh's favorite security safety blankets. And Jermaine Pratt, uh, famously a safety in college, who converted to linebacker his last year and then started leading the ACC in tackles. Gained like a billion pounds to do yeah, that. Yeah, and was leading the ACC in tackles his first year playing linebacker. Um, has played really well against those sort of middle deepish hook routes that Dawson Knotts likes to run. He's batted a bunch of balls away. He's had his hands on a couple others that look like they could have been interceptions. He's played really, really well. And if you sort of lock that out, it leaves Josh and Stephon Diggs. And Stephon Diggs is going to get his in this game. I want to say this. Stephon Diggs is going to have one of those games where he might go off. He Mm -hmm. might have a really big game versus the Bengals. The Bengals might be okay with that. Normally, you would not say your alpha wide receiver, your opposing alpha wide receiver having a big day is a thing. But if that's all that happens, and there's no run game, and there's no Dawson Knox, and Gabe Davis struggles to catch the ball against physical defense, like, the Bengals will win that game. So even if Diggs has 120 yards and a touchdown or two, which he might in this game, looking at the matchups, I think the Bengals might be not happy with it, but okay with that, because that might be all the Bills offense does. Now, there might be some Bills fans that, that push back a little bit and say, what do you mean our, our run game hasn't been great all year? You know, we're 11th and DVOA and our EPA is high. Like, okay, you have to, um, I think what you're talking about is the Devin Singletary, James Cook, you know, running back oriented run game, which has had its moments over the back half of the year but also can be very streaky. And unfortunately, Devin Singletary also has had a fumbling issue. Like it's, it's been up and down more up lately, but the DVOA and the EPA and everything also counts Josh Allen's runs. And I think we have to separate out the Josh Allen running game from the running back running game. Cause they're two very different things. And obviously Josh Allen running is going to be important in this game because he's, whether it's a scramble or a design run, he's arguably the best or second best running quarterback in the league. But I think that we have to look at the Bills run game with two sides of the same coin of when are the running backs getting carries, which is much less effective than when the quarterback is getting carries. And that has been a problem for them for like three years now. It's not that Devin Singletary doesn't have some amazing runs where his contact balance shows up and you're like, holy shit, he's really good. It's that it's streaky. It's that it's inconsistent. That's the part that's annoying. And I think that the inconsistency is why they don't commit to it as much, which then leads to the part that we also get frustrated by, which is they're running Josh Allen too much, and we're worried about him getting hurt. So I think that this is more of an offseason thing. Getting consistent with the run game is one of the things that the Bills really have to do over summer so that they don't have to rely on their quarterback running the ball just to be 11th in rushing DVOA. We want to be able to be top five, without hurting our quarterback like that's the goal here so I think that there's there's nuance to the Bills run game discussion which is it's good in spurts it's not good consistently without the quarterback getting beat the hell up and that's that's an issue and the Um, coaching staff will take the ball out of the running backs hands if they run at at the wrong time if they run a couple times and they don't have success which they might not probably won't against this Cincinnati front. This Cincinnati front fits the run very, very well. If they have those limited carries where they're getting two yards a carry, they might be getting three yards a carry, and they do three or four of those, sometimes the coaching staff just turns off the spigot for the running back run game. Mm -hmm. They just go, nope, 
and you see six more of them for the whole game, and you get those nine and ten rush games for the team for folks besides Josh Allen, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're absolutely correct. We're talking about two separate facets of the run game. They do mesh together in the stats, but schematically, you need the sort of traditional running back, fullback, run game to have some success. It's going to struggle to do that, and I don't think necessarily you can go away from it because, again, if you start letting this defense relax and go a little bit deeper, if they don't have respect for the run other than Josh Allen getting his, and he will, this defense is going to be very tough to crack, and it's going to basically amplify those the chances for those Allen mistakes in the passing game that he desperately needs to avoid if the Bills are going to move on. Now, expanding on uh, the Bills' passing offense against the, the Bengals' passing defense, I also put together some notes for that because this is another one that I find super fascinating. Like, once we get away from the run game stuff, like, okay, if we are throwing the ball in that specific area, how do these teams match up together? Um, because we didn't really get to see this play out, and I think that everything that I thought was going to play out the first time is probably going to play out this time. Uh, Lou Anarumo, his defense does not have a whole lot of tendencies. That is one of the things that makes them so good is that they are very balanced. Like they're not top 10 in percentages of any particular coverage call because they call everything except for a very specific set of circumstances. And the one tendency that I have found, and I, I saw it on film and I, I went digging for numbers to see if I was crazy, if that was just like this three game sample, or if that was everything. And this is everything. So the one tendency that I found that might be exploitable just because the Bills might know it's coming if they dug into this like I did, which they probably did because they're better at this than I am, is that if Buffalo lines up from under center with a balanced two-by-two two look, so Josh Allen under center, running back behind him, two receivers on each side, since he leans really heavily into cover one and cover three, uh, you know, middle field close structures where we're dropping a body down because... You can run in either direction from that look. You can run weak, you could run strong, you could run literally any concept. And so we want to drop bodies down and we want to play that aggressively and just like shoot gaps, get downhill, all that kind of stuff. And they're really good at that. However, on those same early downs, still two by two look, still same number of threats either side, but in shotgun, things completely change. Their cover three usage gets almost cut in half down to about 27%. And their cover two usage more than doubles up to 25%. So their play calling goes back to being um, a little bit more skewed, if we're also counting the quarter stuff and the quarter, quarter, half stuff, a little bit more skewed into middle field open looks. Now you might be wondering, okay, why is that? Like, why does shotgun make such a big difference when it's the same personnel grouping, same down and distance, same receiver distribution. And to me, my feeling on that is because when you're in the in the shotgun, the running back is not behind you. It's pistol would be behind you. Shotgun, it's not. It's to one side or the other. And in most rushing concepts, that kind of dictates the flow of where the run can go. Because if it's outside zone, you know, you've got the mesh, you're flowing this way to hand the ball off. Same thing for outside zone. And so you can kind of guess where the run is going to go other than if you're calling something like counter where the running back steps and then goes back the other way. Um, and it, it kind of dictates to the offense where the run is going to go. And so the defense 
can just set the three technique away from uh, the running back. You put DJ Reader at nose shade. So if they do run counter back the other way, he's going to stop it anyway because he's DJ Reader. And so it, it kind of, you know, relieves the guessing game from the defense of where the run's going to go. And so they can set their coverages differently because the run fit is based off of, you know, where the safeties are, basically. Um, you know, you're setting the front based off the coverage. And so based on that look, to me, I think that the jump in cover two is because they know statistically where the run, if there is a run, is going to go. And they trust their three technique to basically send everything back DJ Reader's way. And then they play cover two to handle the back end. And they live with everything else. They do give up 4.1 yards per carry against gun two by two looks. But I think they're okay with that because 4.1, like who cares? That's average. But if you look at the gun two by two looks in the passing game, they allow 52% completions. It's six and a half yards per attempt. It's one touchdown, one pick, and two sacks, and only about an 89 passer rating, which is well below average at this point for the modern NFL. So I think they're willing to live with you getting some rushing yards, especially against Buffalo, where they often just don't want to run the ball in exchange for playing cover two. Now, that also might bring up the questions, okay, well, what the hell are Bills going to do then? If they're going to be seeing a lot of cover two, like do they go three by one, try to force out some quarter stuff? It, I, I wouldn't necessarily say yes, because the Bengals are a lot better at doing that than the Chargers were. If we're going back to the Jags Chargers example, I think it's okay to still be in two by two and live with the cover two you're going to see, but you just have to have a plan on how to beat it. And to me, the plan to beat it is you use those coverage rules against them and you put Gabe Davis and Stephon Diggs on the same side, or you're, or you're using Stephon as a, as a decoy, you run him down the boundary, you force that safety to expand, and then we're running uh, either a number two or we getting somebody else across the formation off motion to get a, a wide receiver matched up on the linebacker that is running the pole down the middle. Um, I think that if we're running kind of like a modified version of 989 with two go routes down the boundary in a middle seam, that middle seam is going to be against a linebacker because the safeties have to expand. That's how cover two works. And so I think that is really where we're going to make some hay. And we've seen teams do that. I mean, we saw the, we saw the Chiefs do it against Tampa. Uh, MVS ran a, a middle seam against cover two. I think it was Devin White that was matched up on him, and he just ran right by his ass and got like 50 yards out of it. I think that we're going to see that which is gun two by two, get them into a cover two shell, and then we get like Stephon Diggs in a stack or something like that, and, and he runs right at the linebacker and turns up field and says bye. And at that point, it's on Josh Allen to survive long enough to get it to him. But you hit on those a couple times, they're going to stop calling cover two. <laughs> they just will. And at that point, if we can get them into cover three, now we're in business because now we get back to all the deep cross stuff we love to do and all the three beaters they have. That's the goal here. It's, it's okay. You don't have to be in three by one if you know they're going to play cover two because we can call stuff that will get them out of it, get them out of their comfort zone, and then fuck them up. That's what I think they're going to try to do. At least that's my theory. I don't know if it's going to happen. I don't know if it's going to work. But if I was on the Bills staff, that's what I would do. It makes sense, and we're going to see the execution. I Like you said, the Bills staff probably has seen the tendency – Anarumo is very good at flexing. He has the personnel to run cover two because he's got two fast linebackers. Pratt's a little bit faster than Wilson, but Wilson can carry 
he can't carry Stephon Diggs down the seam. Like, not very many linebackers. Nobody in this can. Unless can. you're Fred Warner. Fred, Fred Warner's, Warner's pretty much it. it. <laughs> but, you know, he can cover some distance and he has very good safeties as well. So it's it's that will Allen stay upright? Will he hit that very small window? And he will a couple of times to Diggs. That I totally believe that the Allen to Diggs combination makes hay in this matchup and Diggs has a very good game if you're betting whatever they've got Diggs at probably bet the over because he's gonna have to and big players play big in playoff games and Stefan Diggs is a certified big game player like he there's no discussion about that so I I truly believe he's gonna get his in this game whether it's enough to crack the Bengals out of the defenses that they want to run to shut down everything else, the things that you said they're willing to accept, a few chunks in the run game, a couple of Josh runs when he breaks contain, you know, that that's okay, right? But is that going to be enough to make them go, oh, that hurts too much, we've got to shift, and then the Bills have them on their back foot where they really want to, and they can try and exploit more of what they like to do regularly on offense. We'll see. That's going to be the fascinating push and pull in this one. If we're looking at uh, the prize pick slip, which I built, I did uh, Joe Mixon over uh, 51 and a half because, again, of all the too high stuff the Bills run, I was like, I think they might try to establish. And we talked uh, last week about how like the Bills were so bad against outside zone. <laughs> and I was like, I think that if they're going to try to get this offensive line settled, it's going to be through the run game. So let's dial us some outside zone to Joe Mixon and let him go eat. 51 and a half seemed a little bit low, so I went over on that. I went over on Joe Burrow to 75 and a half. And I do not feel good about it, but I would hate myself more if I went under than if I busted on him going over. So it's like, this is what's going to hurt me more. And I, I'd rather go down believing in Joe Burrow than not. Um, I did over Stefan Diggs, 82 and a half, which right. against this defense, I know seems sketchy, but based on how much they use Diggs at Z to be the motion guy, if they dial up something to punish cover two and try to get him matched up on a linebacker, I think it's going to be with Diggs and not with Davis or Shakir. And I think it's going to be off motion because they do that a lot. So I'm going to go Diggs over 82 and a half. Um, I did Josh Allen over 270 and a half passing. Cause again, if I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down swinging. <laughs> I don't feel great about it, but I'm, I'm, I'm risking it because this defense is really good. Uh, and then one that I actually feel better about compared to how we were talking about the bills run game, I took Devin Singletary over 44 and a half rushing because I do think that if they can't throw them out of it with cover two beaters, they might try to run them out of it. And so I'm, and I think that if you're going to run them out of it, I think it'll be less Josh Allen centric and more. Um, let's see if we can do some like same side inside zone with Devin Singletary, or, you know, maybe we can get like a little, little crack toss off motion, something like that, because the safeties are going to be so deep and get Singletary with all that contact balance matched up against a DB in space. So 44 and a half just seemed low enough where I'm like, well, if they can't get them out of cover two with the, with the passing game, they're going to do it with the running game. So again, that's Mixon over 51 and a half, Burrow over 275 and a half, Diggs over 82 and a half, Singletary over 44 and a half, Allen over 270 and a half. Um, this one I do not feel as good about as the other game, but this is also a much closer matchup between two uh, Titanic AFC contenders. So you're not really supposed to feel good about it. You're just supposed to white knuckle it and pray. Yeah, I love the I love the digs line out of that slip probably more than any of the others. I feel like one of the two quarterbacks will hit that number. 
The Singletary one, he could, but I also feel like that could be split with Cook because Cook's been their explosive run guy uh, as a sort of more of a changeup. So there's there's some uncertainty around the rest of that slip, but the Diggs one I am that's the gets the old green stamp of approval like eighty yards. Like yeah. yeah. The good he's, news is even if we it. only hit three, we still cash cover, on it. So cover the cost. You know, five will pay us out ten X, four to five pays us out two X, three out of five pays us out point four X. So we still cash. We just have to hit three of them. Uh all right, man. This was a hell of a preview episode. I do have one more thing before we thank our executive producers, and this was a segment that I promised long ago. Oh, yes. We have fan mail that I said I would open up on camera. They said I have to, so I'm doing it. Uh, I, this is from I'm, a, a collection of patrons. Jared sent it to me yeah, from his house. I am uh, extremely excited to see the results of this and also somewhat terrified. They've been trolling me for like a solid month and a half, so this is probably going to be a troll, but we'll see what it is. All right, bags open. What's this? The jersey. To you with love for me, hockey's cure. Please PP me $20 for the over. Oh, yeah. It's a, so there was a shipping mishap. And so they're like, oh, we have to send it from Jared's house. So I already PayPal'd him for shipping. Oh, my God. Let's see what this is. The Texans jersey. Is it book? Ah! <laughs> Are you uh, fucking kidding me? <laughs> a Bill O'Brien 69 jersey? Oh, boy. You assholes. <laughs> I love you, but you assholes. Oh, right, man. When, when I do, when I do my, my Texans offseason episode, I'm wearing this. Yes, God. for sure. <laughs> they just... They, they know, know where deep. it hurts. That's they right. Know they know deep. where it hurts. And, you know, thank you. Guys, sent though. sent with you. love. Right. It's the ones that love us that can that can cut us the deepest. You are they spent they've spent hundreds of dollars yes. trolling me for like six weeks. I, I said <laughs> that I have never wanted a physical headquarters with a flagpole out front more than when I did when they <laughs> sent you that flag because oh, I would I fly got... it. I would mount the flag in the back. I forgot to do that. Yeah. No. I'll put it right there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you, Jared Hockey's Cure. Uh, all of our patrons, all of our executive producers for Bootleg, Marat, Consti, Caden, Andrew, Taylor, Liam, Connor, Joey, and Mike. We appreciate all of you uh, and all the support you've given to the show, all of the, the mean gifts you've been sending. Uh, <laughs> we appreciate all of them. We love you all. We'll be back later this week for our NFC preview and look back on wildcard round. Uh, yeah, see you very soon. Until then, later. Take care. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.